Jim and Melody Critchlow uh, joined, uh, stayed overnight at uh, Jitted in our, my house last night, and we got to know them. They are really nice people. Jim was a, uh, um, an Army officer, a major in the Army, uh, and when he uh, finished his uh, work there, he uh, took the advice of a, an old friend of his, Dick Camp, who some of you remember was a pastor here back in the 60s. Uh, at the time, uh, Dick Camp was the chaplain of West Point, and uh, Dick Camp was quite instrumental in uh, setting direction, being a mentor to Jim. Um, and so the, uh, uh, Jim went on to uh, seminary when he finished his uh, career in the Army, and then uh, has gone on and received his doctorate in studies of uh, ancient biblical languages. And so he teaches at uh, Gordon-Conwell now and uh, uh, some of the books of the Old Testament as well as in uh, uh, Hebrew and Greek. And it's my pleasure right now to introduce you to Dr. Jim Critchlow. Thank you, Tim. I spoke to Jeremy on the phone the other day, and he offered me the chance to preach on Luke 11, which is about Jesus casting out the mute spirit. And the Pharisees and unbelievers said that he did it by Beelzebub. But I don't know who that is, so I'm going to let Jeremy preach on that next week. <laughs> and I'm going to listen to the tape to find out what, uh, what uh, Beelzebub is. But... Jesus responded, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the heavens have come, or the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And it was that great passage that uh, made me look back to something that I thought I might be able to speak on. And that's Isaiah 59. Now, Jeremy spoke on this back in 2004 and 2005. He, he is a great expositor of the Word. I haven't met Jeremy, but I've listened to him, and I went to the same school he went to, and uh, his eloquence just comes across on the web when I listen to him. And yet, I think that uh, in his studies of Isaiah, he had to bypass some things. You just can't do all 66 chapters. You all would still be doing Isaiah in 2008. And we do need to get to Luke and, and the Gospels and John and Hebrews. And so it was just a great opportunity for me to come back and fill in one little bridge between Isaiah 58 that he covered, that great chapter on fasting. And he said the, the purpose of this exposition week by week by a pastor is so that when we come to these difficult texts, we have to grapple with the whole counsel of God. We might not want to do fasting. He said he didn't want to. But when God speaks about it, we need to pay attention. And then he went on to 64 through 66, great messianic text talking about Jesus the Christ. And so what I wanted to do is kind of fill in this little bridge from Isaiah 59 to 63 and talk about my Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is hidden in this Old Testament. But for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, he speaks from the text. 
Let's pray. Oh Lord, the great and mighty God, the gracious Redeemer and Savior of Israel and the Church, we give you glory and honor and praise. And now we open, we open our Bibles and we open our hearts. Show us your will. Show us your heart and your name. Help us to look you in the face and to know that we've met with the Holy God. Not to me, Lord. Oh, not to me be the glory, but to you. The glory and honor that is due your name. In the great name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. In the Pew Bible there, that's on page 737. If you would, if you don't have your own Bible, please turn in the the text and keep it open. Um, I do not speak for my own authority. I speak only what the text says. And what I would like you to do is double check. Make sure I don't go off to the left or to the right in this text. I want to stay right with what the text says and the way that you can tell is if you've got your Bible open and make sure that, uh, that we're doing the right thing. I bring you greetings from our own conservative Baptist church, True Memorial Baptist Church in Rochester, New Hampshire. Uh, my pastor gave me leave to come and preach this week and he said, don't make it a habit, Jim. <laughs> so today I'd like to, uh, to look for about 25 minutes or so at Isaiah 59, and we're going to do 50, verse 15b to the end of the chapter. Isaiah 59, 15b. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm worked salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit who is on you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth, or from the mouths of your children, or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Now hold that thought. Turn over a couple of pages to Isaiah 63. And we're going to continue the reading in the first six verses. Isaiah 63. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah with his garments stained crimson? Who is this? robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? 
I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Wow. Turn back, please, to Isaiah 59. I had to ask myself, when I looked into this text, what is going on? Ten years ago, I retired from the army after 29, after 20 years, and Henry, thank you for your service. Thank you all veterans who have had a piece in the action of securing our liberties. On Tuesday, we will celebrate the 230th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration, and it's a great reason to celebrate at the same time our veterans who have done so much for us. So to Henry and to all like him who have served, thank you. This text is a, uh, is a wonderful tribute to our veteran God. The God who has served, the God who has worn a uniform, the God who has conquered the foe. Have you fought any dragons lately? Have you stormed any fortresses? Have you been engaged in the battle? Well, God has. Let's see how he does this. Now, as I read Isaiah 59, 15b, and I look at it, and I think, boy, there's, there's some interesting things that I, I, I'm surprised at when I first come to them. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Why would God be displeased? Well, there's something missing, and it's justice. It's what God wants. It's a fundamental part of who God is. He is the God of justice and mercy and compassion, and he speaks peace. But there's something broken. There is no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that no one was there to intervene or to be an intercessor. And so his own arm worked salvation for him. So I've, I see no justice, no one to intervene, no, an, no intercessor. So God's own arm worked salvation for him. Well, like you, I think, I, I think I can understand the God who can do justice, the God who can be the mighty warrior, the divine redeemer, the God of Jacob, the Lord of hosts. Okay, well, I got that part. And his own righteousness sustained him. It was the continuation of all of these he and his that got my attention. Now maybe you haven't seen it, but look at just the second half of verse 16. If, if you start counting up the he and the his... Let's see, we've got uh, he saw, he was appalled, his arm works salvation for him, his own righteousness sustained him, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, he put on the garments of vengeance, he wrapped 
himself in zeal, according to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his, his enemies, retribution to his foes, he will repay. They will revere his glory. He will come. That's a lot of he's. Isn't that unusual to find one passage that has so many iterations of he? Now, we know it's God because it says in verse 15a, the Lord looked, but he was this and he was that. And I thought, okay, I better go back and visit my grammar. Now, I know grammar is an ugly word. Many of you, when you went through, I don't know, it was either 6th or 7th grade, and the teacher stood up and talked about first person, second person, third person, and conjugations and all that, and you just eyes rolled, and you went to sleep. That's what I did. So why would anybody want to preach and talk about grammar? Well, when you see all these he's going on, you've got to get to why is it there. So I'm going to give you a very short course in grammar. We're going to review what they taught in seventh grade. There's first person, I and me. Or if it's plural, it is we. That's first person. Second person is you or you all. Second person. And third person is he, she, it, or they, them. Okay? It's, I hope I haven't lost anybody yet. I am, you are, he is. Well, this is the third person. He is. And there are 20 uses in the original Hebrew of the, of the he, his, or him. So, what is this text about? It's about him. But there's a, there's a nice break in the text right around verse 20. It's no longer the he, him. Now it's named the Redeemer. It's a very significant break. Now, I'm going to give you the application up front. I think this is about Jesus Christ. I think this is Jesus hidden in the Old Testament. It doesn't say Jesus Christ or even Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. But I think that's Jesus. So you listen along and see if I'm right. And then in the third... Uh, set in verse 21 it changes again it was third person then it's about it's about the redeemer and then in, in verse 21 it says as for me this is my covenant that's the first person my spirit my words that I have put so we have this change from third person to first person So what we're going to do is I'm going to generally go through the structure of this and try and convince you that there is some utility in grammar, that there is something here, that Jesus Christ is all over verse 20, the Holy Spirit, and God's Word is verse 21, and that looking at it together, we have the sovereign, holy God, the one God of Israel, and we know that from the... The, the fundamental saying every faithful Jew gets up in the morning and they start their day, out, their day out with Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that great confession of Israel is our confession. We have one God, but he has three persons. He has three Roles. He has three mediatorial requirements, responsibilities. So let's take a look at this thing here. The divine warrior, these first verses, 15 to 19. The divine warrior puts on his uniform, starting in verse 17. 
He puts on righteousness as his breastplate. When soldiers in Iraq and and, uh, Afghanistan, before they go out, they put on their flak vest, their body armor. God puts on his righteousness, his own righteousness as his body armor. And the helmet of salvation on his head, just like our soldiers wear their Kevlar before they go out in the battle. God put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. There's no equivalent to that in the U.S. Army inventory. But God puts these things on. This is his uniform. Now, most of you who've, who've got a study Bible or you've read this, breastplate, helmet, that sounds an awful lot like Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God. So in the warfare, you may take your stand. And having done everything, you will stand with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, your feet fitted with the gospel of peace. And you take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And last of all, you take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So they're dressed in the panoply. They're dressed in the mighty armor of God. We can take our stand. And in Isaiah 59, God takes his stand. Now, God doesn't need all the same armor, but there are suggestive elements of the armor that God is wearing when he's going to go as divine warrior to defeat the enemy. And so the question would be, who's the enemy? Who is God going to go out? Who is God going to conquer? Who is God going to take his stand and defeat? Hmm. I don't see Babylon. I'm looking, but I don't see Assyria or uh, Persia. I don't see the Philistines in here, the Moabites, the Ammonites. I don't, I don't know where they're at. Maybe God is not going out to defeat a human enemy. Maybe there's, maybe there's a divine thing or someone, some kind of force that he is going out to defeat. I believe he's going to defeat the monster sin. There's no name for who he's going. And that made me think... How will he defeat all these things? Well, it must be, it can't be Philistia because David did Philistia. You remember when he slung the sling and one stone buried itself in the, in the great monster Goliath and he fell down and lost his head? So it's not Philistia and it's not Amalek because Joshua put him to the, to the sword and Samuel. And it's not Moab and it's not these others. And by the time Isaiah had written this in Isaiah 59, he had prophesied the end of Babylon. Assyria had met their doom at the hands of Babylon. Persia was a great power for a time, but it is on the wane. So who is it that God is going to destroy? Who would the divine warrior stand up to fight? Well, it's either Satan or it's Satan's tool, and that is sin and temptation. So God wraps himself in his spiritual armor. And verse 18, which is a very difficult verse to translate. Now, in 
in your version. I'm going to, I'm going to read what it says in the, in the New International Version first. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. In the King James, it's different than that. Um, boy, this one's a tough one. This is why it took me four years at seminary and four years after that to kind of come to a solution on this one. Now, I haven't got any great wisdom for you. I haven't got any super answer for you, but I've got, I've got one thing that you can kind of chew on. I think if I were to ask you, do you know a Hebrew word? Most of you would say, I don't know Hebrew, but I might know one. I've heard of shalom. I know what shalom is. That's peace. Isn't that peace? And that's right. That's what it is. But Hebrew is a relational language. Hebrew is, is a wonderful language. And to shalom is to pacify or to be at peace. But to shalem, that is to pacify. And what we have here in, in verse 18 is, although the text is kind of hard to understand, the big picture of it, there's going to be some payment. There's going to be some recompense, some return on the activity. So 18, according to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies, the retribution to his foes. He is going to shalam his enemies. When he shalams his enemies, there will be shalom. There will be peace. There will be justice. There will be righteousness. Just what God is and what he expects of us. So God is going to dress himself as the divine warrior. He's going to engage in, in sovereign combat and it's not much of a fight. If you, look at the, if you look at the panoply that God's wearing, it's all defensive. I think that's for our, our understanding. God doesn't actually need these things, but so that we can understand them, he gives us these terms. That Okay, a breastplate and a helmet and the, the cloak of vengeance, but God goes out to repay. And the weapon, the offensive weapon he uses is found down at the bottom of verse 16, his own arm. That's all God needs. It's his own arm that will deal with sin once and for all. And once his arm deals with sin, then righteousness and shalom and peace can rule and salvation will be ours. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. From the west... Men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun they will revere his glory. We sang that song from the, you know, shout to the north and the south, sing to the east and the west. Uh, there's a, this is just something called a merism. This is from A to Z, or Z. From the earth to the heavens, and everything in between. And so what's going on here? This is a statement that universally men will fear the Lord. From the west and from the rising of the sun, it's just a way of saying the east, they will revere his glory, the name and the glory of God. Here's our divine warrior dressed in his, in his uniform that we can understand with his mighty right arm, 
and he fights against sin and he will repay. He will shalem those that are against him. Verse 19. He will come like a pent-up flood. You know, I used to I used to think about our poor brothers and sisters who are down in New Orleans. What a sad situation that they were in the path of that horrible flooding of Katrina. What, what a shame. And I, we sent our money and our church sent money and sent mission groups. And I understand that many of you did too. Or put together houses that could be built. We sent our son-in-law and his brother and his wife. And they went down and helped clean up. And I thought, what a tragedy that they lived in the floodplain and the hurricane came and wiped out the levees and they were, they were just drowned out of their houses and terrible loss of life. But I was thinking in my, the back of my head, I didn't put voice to it, but I was thinking in the back of my head, if they hadn't lived in the floodplain, they wouldn't have been at risk. And that judgmental spirit, it was back there. I said, oh, they just... They, I'm not going to say they deserved it, but if they hadn't lived in the floodplain, they wouldn't have been flooded out. That was until the second week of May when we had to evacuate from our house. <laughs> and the divine warrior stood up and said, you know, Jim, he didn't say it in those kind of words, but the idea of, of if you hadn't lived in the floodplain, you wouldn't have been flooded out. Now, we were fortunate we didn't lose our house, but it was a great reminder that when... The, when the floods come, when the waters come, uh, it's too late to seek the shalom then. Now's the time to seek shalom. So I look back at the text and it says, He will come like a pent-up flood or like a river in a narrow defile. We live about 35 feet above the Salmon Falls River. Normally it's no problem. But when the dams go, when the Salmon Falls Dam goes, we're going to be underwater. But God is going to come like that too. An interesting passage at the very end of 19. He will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Some of your versions may have the Spirit drives along. Or even the wind, because the Ruach in the Hebrew right here is the same word for wind, breath, and spirit. Either little spirit or capital spirit. So, no matter how you translate it, the idea of a coming flood, there's a, there's a danger there. There's something to take notice of. And so, this whole section from 15b to 19 in this third person, he will do what God is going to do, what men will revere and fear, and... The, the, the pent-up flood that's coming and the breath of the Lord drives along. Big change happens here. Okay, That's that first section from verse 15b through 19. But big change happens in verse 20. If you have, uh, if you have the NIV, it's even in quotes. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Now, I told you earlier, I think this is Jesus. Now, let me tell you why I think it's Jesus. The word for redeemer right there is a goel. Uh, 
Most of you who have looked at Ruth, the book of Ruth, know that Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. And that word in the Hebrew is a goel. And what is a goel? Well, what a goel is, it's someone who comes along to redeem or to buy back the property or the person of someone who they, they want to buy back. So they, there's a transaction that takes place. A goel has to be related. You can't goel somebody you're not related to. And you have to be very close to. For instance, Boaz could not redeem Ruth without going to the nearer kinsman redeemer. There was a goel even closer than Boaz. You have to be able to redeem. And once the goel has made the commitment to redeem, he has to pay the just demand. Now, I see Jesus all over this. A redeemer, a goel who comes to Zion to those in Jacob. Now, this text doesn't just sit in isolation. It certainly is related to what goes before it. When Jeremy preached on Isaiah 58, it said, Blow the trumpet in Zion, shout it aloud, um, declare to the house of Jacob their sin. This is all related. But the Redeemer who comes to Zion and to Jacob, this has got to be an individual who's close, an individual who's able to redeem, and an individual who pays the just demand. Who could pay the just demand for sin? There's only one that I know of, and his name is Jesus Christ. Okay. Those who repent of their sins. So there's more to this passage than what is immediately obvious. The Redeemer will come to Zion, but he also comes to those who repent of their sins. In the earlier part of this passage, it is God, the divine warrior, who's coming to deal with sin. In verse 20, it's Jesus who comes to deal with with, with sin. So we have these two main movements, 15 to 19, and then verse 20. And then we get to verse 21. This is the last portion of the the scripture. And there's a major change in in the thought. Again, we had third person, he, his, and him. And now we go to, as for me, my, mine, and I. And so the divine speaker says, as for me, this is my covenant with them says the Lord. So we know the I who is speaking is the Lord. My spirit who is on you. Now spirit, I saw that back up in verse 19. The breath of the Lord. It's the same word. The ruach. But this doesn't fit the breath or the wind or the breeze of God. This is much more, this must be the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, Who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth? Wow. God, the divine warrior, deals with sin. Jesus, the Redeemer, Son, deals with sin. And God gives us a covenant and a spirit. What amazing gifts. What an amazing trio. 
The God who is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. Here he is, the one who speaks the covenant, my covenant, and who puts his spirit on us. Yet, there's more. He puts his spirit on you and my words that I have put in your mouth. Boy. God puts his words in our mouths. What a thought. Do you remember all the way back in 2004 when Jeremy preached from Isaiah 6? I saw the law, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. This was in the year that King Uzziah died. And Isaiah says, how can I speak to the Lord? For I, I'm a, a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And the Lord sends the seraph with a, with a burning ember to touch Isaiah's lips. And he puts his word in Isaiah's mouth. But he hasn't just put it in Isaiah's mouth. I put it, it says, I have put it in your mouth. There's a promise there. God has put his word in our mouths. And lest we think we are something, he's also put it in the mouths of our children and the mouths of their children's children. What a great gift. What a great gift. The God who is here to defeat sin in the divine warrior uniform, who sends retribution and repayment and shalom and sends the Redeemer, he also sends his covenant and his Holy Spirit and he puts his word in our mouths, in the mouths of our children and our children's children. But there's more. There's the promise that it will go on from this time on and forever. From this time on and forever. Now the reason I read Isaiah 63, 1 to 6, it's the flip side of this. Isaiah 59 is the he and his 20 times over. And the I, me and mine, 5 times over. The reverse of this is Isaiah 63. I'm going to let you go home and ponder that one. In that one, it's I, me, and mine 20 times over. And the he, his, and yours three and five times. They're, they're pieces of the same puzzle. They're, they're pictures of the same God. The divine warrior God who is going to defeat sin... And he does it through his Holy Spirit and his son, the Redeemer, who comes to Zion to those who are returning from sin. He gives us the covenant. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He puts his words in our mouths and our children and our children's children. Our forefathers and foremothers, our ancestors and our descendants from this time on and forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the great and awesome God.
You are the God who speaks and planets were flung into space. You are the God who created our galaxy with billions of stars and other galaxies that are hundreds of millions of light years away, each with billions of stars. And you know them all by name. You created them and you know their path. When you created earth, you created it for life. And you put the plants and you put the animals and you put man and woman on the earth. But that was not enough. You gave us revelation in, in ancient Israel. You gave them the law. And for us, you gave us Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to live that we might not sin against you. Lord, thank you so much for the many, many blessings you give to us. And we pray that uh, as we leave this church, we will go knowing that we are redeemed by the great divine God, the warrior, by Jesus, the Son of God, by the Holy Spirit, and we have the promise that the word will go forth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lord, for these mighty gifts. We give you praise and glory and honor in the great name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. And John, I think you're coming to do our...